0: Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 82. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. On today's episode, we're talking about Reimagining Apologetics with Dr. Justin Bailey, who is Assistant Professor of Theology at Dort University and the author of Reimagining Apologetics, The Beauty of Faith in a Secular Age, published by IVP Academic. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Amber Bowen and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So this is the fifth episode in our apologetics series and with our previous episodes we have been addressing a lot of the concerns that we've had and that our guests have had about the apologetic enterprise and we've put forward some constructive proposals about ways forward. But in this episode, it's it's a particularly constructive conversation about how to reimagine apologetics. So Amber, what are some of your takeaways from our conversation with Dr. Bailey?
1: I do love the constructive nature of this book, particularly in his use of imagination, because a lot of times when we talk about apologetics, we think about lining up all of my different arguments that i'm going to aim at the atheist or the unbeliever in order to defend my faith or in order to convince him or her that my faith is superior and we think about more of um, facts and objective analyses but what dr bailey does is help us to understand the importance of imagination um, and how that's not recourse to subjective feelings or or things like that fantasy. Uh, he has a pretty robust definition of imagination that helps us understand faith in a more holistic light as a, a mode of being in the world, um, and as, as something that's compelling and invitational. Yeah,
0: and in our conversation with Dr. Bailey, we talk about some traditional apologetic concepts like God of the gaps, and traditional apologetic methods like presuppositionalism, and Dr. Bailey really emphasizes empathy and personal relationality as a really compelling alternative to some of the ways that apologetics usually is handled.
1: His account of empathy, I think, is particularly compelling as a model forward. Uh, It's a way that combines the intellectual and the pastoral uh, in in a really unique way, but a way that I think centers on what we value most in having conversations about faith.
0: All right, and here's our conversation with Dr. Bailey. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Bailey.
2: Yeah, it's so good to be with you guys.
0: So, I would begin by hearing a little bit about your book, Reimagining Apologetics. Uh, what are you trying to do with that book? What are you reimagining?
2: Yeah, that's a big question. It's funny because I always say that um, there's these two circles, maybe these two spheres of my life, that I'm trying to push together in some ways. So one is a ministry sphere, which is you know, coming out of pastoral ministry and the desire to reach people where they are, especially to reach emerging adults, which is who I've primarily been ministering to and continue to minister to as a professor. Uh, and then the other sphere is sort of an aesthetic sphere, an imaginative sphere that's interested in creativity and the arts and um, yeah, those, those, those sorts of things. And it's funny because these are two circles and I don't know if the Venn diagram for most people, overlaps that much. In fact, a lot of people are either in the apologetic circle that are really suspicious of the imagination, or then the aesthetic circle, really suspicious of apologetics. So I think what I'm trying to do in some ways is a work of integration of my own life and ministry um, and my scholarly work. Um, but there is really a pastoral function to what I'm writing here uh, in hopes of rethinking the way that we. Uh, bear witness to Christian faith uh, and the way that we treat our own doubts and questions about faith uh, within the church
0: so what what does that look like for you? How do we or how should we bear witness to christian faith?
2: well, I mean that's obviously a huge question you know that's that's the whole book. Um, but I think at a certain point I became convinced that you know when I was in pastoral ministry and had no plans of pursuing any sort of further graduate study. I was, um, I was working with, with uh, high school and college students, and I had a college student who said something to me like this. He said, you know, we're in, when we're in church and I'm listening to you preach, it's like you're weaving a spell, and I believe, and the world makes sense to me, and then I walk outside, and it's like the spell is broken, and I don't know what I believe. I don't know who I am. Uh, I don't know how everything fits together anymore." And that conversation actually was the conversation that was sort of this, you know, worm in my brain that I couldn't get out of my head. Uh, and conversations like that made me think that there's something that we've missed in the way we think about um, reaching, reaching people um, and discipling people, uh, where we think that if we can just get the right information in front of them, <laughs> the right information downloaded into their brains, then, yeah they'll believe, right? And that right action will follow right knowledge, you know, that sort of thing. So just teach people about their identity in Christ, or just teach people about um, all of the arguments for the existence of God, or teach them about the historicity of the resurrection, and, and everything will sort of make sense. And so the conclusion I came to was this sense that we had underappreciated the imagination. I didn't quite know what that meant. Uh, that's why I went back to school, because I wanted to understand what that meant. And I'm not, I'm still not sure that I do. Uh, I'm still sort of chasing that. The imagination is the sort of elusive thing that we, we know it when we're doing it, I guess. But when you start to think about, well, what exactly is imagining? Uh, but I became convinced that it had to be more than just uh, the, the, the focus on the intellect that we have had uh, in the church.
1: One of the things you talk about in your book to kind of outline that is um, upper and lower story apologetics. Could you explain briefly what is upper story apologetics and what are its aims and its goals, what's lower story, and how are you trying to situate us in what you call the the wider historical tradition of apologetics?
2: Sure. Yeah, just to make a distinction, I, I, I th- uh, uppercase and lowercase is the language that I use. Upper story, lower story, I think is Francis Schaeffer's language. And I'm not opposed to the way you've described it. I just don't want anybody to be confused by uh, the correlation. So I say uppercase apologetics or apologetics with a capital A is sort of this magisterial project of apologetics. Uh, it's top down. It is uh, evidence that demands a verdict, right? So here is our apologetic argument. And we're going to you know, bring you know, sort of set it down on you, and this will um prove uh why you should believe why you must believe. Uh it's epistemic obligation, we might say it you are oblig you should you must believe uh because here's the proof, right, that we have. Uh by contrast, lower case apologetics, uh apologetics with a small a um is a sort of ministerial project that is responsive to whatever questions uh happen to be being asked. So in some ways, it's maybe a little more ad hoc, uh, contextual. Um, and it changes, given the, the circumstance, so that the same arguments don't necessarily obtain, uh, the same approaches don't necessarily obtain. Uh, and so what I'm trying to say is that this magisterial approach to apologetics is really the novelty, uh, is, is something that is relatively new in the history of apologetics. Um, but the ministerial side of apologetics is a necessity, right? As long as the church has to bear witness, it has to answer the questions that that are asked and respond to obstacles and objections to Christian faith. So, if you study the history of apologetics, it's it's been practiced quite differently in different places at different times. And so that's what I mean by the wider tradition. Um, so, one of the questions that I had when writing this book is, do I even call this apologetics? Because a lot of people Um, when they hear apologetics, have an image of magisterial, uppercase apologetics, a sage on the stage, a genius, you know, who has all the arguments and is ready to trot them out against a rival genius. Um, And so it's sort of this battle of wits, right, from the Princess Bride, uh, where you have to come armed with your best arguments. And so I think that What I'm hoping to do is not to reject that kind of, just not not to reject it out of hand, um, but to situate it with with another kind of apologetics, or at least one that takes the imagination into greater account. So it's not that we don't need the classical arguments, for example, for God's existence, but um, they're only a, a slice of what apologetics really, really is.
0: So in apologetic discussions, you kind of have this like internal external dynamic where it's like, are we uh, creating great answers to external opposition or are we creating, you know, great answers to these questions to kind of uh, comfort and encourage those internal to the faith already to kind of reinforce that they have good reasons to believe or, or these sorts of things. Given your stress on imagination, um, would you see that spanning both the external and the internal signs of this, uh, or is this more of an internal element to what you um, are proposing?
2: I think it's both, Um, and especially when it comes to the external element, part of what I'm hoping is that this can help bridge some of the gaps that already exist. Um, There are some things about faith that can only be understood from the inside, um, from a position of commitment. Uh, until you are in a position of commitment, you cannot completely understand uh, what it means to be uh, in this sort of relationship of faith uh, to transcendent reality, right, to, to God. Um, and yet, you are trying to commend um, the faith to somebody on the outside. So that is a profound... Um, Problem, at least, maybe paradox of how do you help somebody who's on the outside understand something that can only be understood from the inside? Uh, so, is there this, this fundamental incommensurability, for example, between the person who's on the outside and the person who's on the inside? And part of what I'm hoping is that imaginative engagement can help bridge this divide, not perhaps completely solve it, but what the imagination does, if you think about when you watch a film or when you read a book is it allows you to vicariously experience the life of somebody else. Uh, Not that you completely enclose that life or completely understand it, but it gives you enough of a taste of their life that you can feel um, effectively um, some of the provocations of that life. So for a person who's on the outside of faith, the life of a saint, for example, is a beautiful provocation or um, a piece of literature or a story or a film made from a, this sort of capacious place of, of Christian vision is an opportunity to see the world through the eyes of faith, um, which in some ways bridges that, uh, bridges that divide. Um, now, as for the internal aspect to um, apologetics, I'm hoping to reimagine it apologetics in some ways as a part of spiritual formation. So if we treated faith and doubt, especially doubt and our struggles with doubt, as matters of spiritual formation rather than as necessarily opposed so that if these things can't coexist, I can't have faith and doubt together. Uh, If we can kind of expand our conception of what the life of faith looks like, that maybe also this gives us resources uh, for helping people who are. Already within, in some sense. Uh, And and even that sort of insider-outsider language is is limited, um, but it does sort of give at least some boundaries to talk about, even if the boundary is permeable and I feel like I'm on either side of the boundary sometimes, uh, it at least kind of gives us language to talk about.
1: One of the things that I like about you talking about the imagination and exploring that in your apologetics enterprise is it really critiques a framework that the Contemporary Apologetics Project um, has been based on, and I always found that a little bit curious because this magisterial apologetics, like what you're talking about, it's really almost a way of fighting fire with fire. It's like, I can take a very, um, enlightenment oriented framework and I can prove faith using those tools better than you can prove disbelief. You know, like I I can take all of the tools and all of the ways of thinking in that framework and try to somehow then come to a conclusion of faith, as opposed to thinking like, well, in what ways would Christianity actually critique and call that framework into account, right? Um, So it's a way of fighting fire with fire. So in that framework really pits objectivity and subjectivity against one another. And it pits um, fact and fiction Uh, or fact and imagination, or fact and feeling uh, against one another. Um, But you're using imagination, and I I think, if I'm understanding what you're doing, it's a way of actually undermining that binary, uh, kind of collapsing that dividing wall, and challenging that framework altogether, which just opens up a new vista of exploration. And I'm wondering if, if that's right, if that's what you're thinking, or, or if you see that as a promising way forward.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm certainly hoping to um, oppose dualisms, <laughs> uh, especially the dualism between, I don't want to create this sort of new dualism between imagination and intellect, or between fact and feeling or anything like that, um, or between truth and beauty, or, you know, anything like that. Um, all of these things are, are integrated because reality is integrated and multi- Uh, aspectual and uh, yeah so I think that very much part of what I'm hoping to do is is say how can we think about the imagination in a way that helps us go forward Uh, so what I don't mean by imagination first of all is I don't mean something that is just for kids so something infantile Um, so you know I say to my son you Use your imagination, you know, and it's almost like go distract yourself with something, right? So in that case, the imagination we associate it with sort of distracting amusements, and I also don't mean by the imagination something that is ima- necessarily imaginary. So it's just sort of fantasy, you know, something that has absolutely no connection to the real world. It's escapist, right? I don't mean that. Uh, what I mean by the imagination is uh, this faculty that we have that is strategic meaning that we, you know, we're doing something by imagining that we can't do any other way uh, and that is intentional. It's pointed towards something, some particular uh, state of affairs, and it is embodied, so it's rooted in our lived experience and embodied in the world, and also that it is oriented towards reality. So it detaches from actuality, but in order to grasp reality more firmly. So the same reason why we read fantasy or we watch films, uh, we don't just do those things to escape. We do them because we feel like having done them, we will be able to navigate the real world more successfully in a more integrated way. Uh, Now, maybe there are some times where you you just go see a film where you're just trying to escape. And there's a place for that too, I think. Uh, but primarily the reason why we are attracted to works of imagination is because they, they integrate us. They integrate our reality, and they enable us to explore possibilities uh, for the sake of grasping reality more firmly. And that's ultimately, I think, how the imagination helps us move forward, is that we're sort of always living, and just our natural engagement with the world is we're interrogating possibilities. As I, I, you know, I, look, I walk into a room and I think of everything that is possible. Uh, to me, that I can turn that doorknob, I can take that book off the shelf, I can open that, you know, that's sort of uh, the way that I live in the world is I'm constantly interrogating possibilities. Now, blow that up, you know, beyond just being in a room, just being in the world, I have a sense of what is possible in that world. Um, And faith will either restrict the range of that possibility, or it'll open up those possibilities in a new way. So part of what I'm trying to say with with reimagining apologetics, especially if the imagination is about possibility, is what are the ways that we can talk about apologetics that are helping people within the church and people outside the church to explore the possibilities that are now available to us if Jesus Christ has really been r- raised from the dead, if God is really alive and at work in the world, if God is for us. You know, all, all of these sort of promises that, that come from the Christian gospel. That gives me a layer of hope of possibility uh, that doesn't exist within the normal constraints of my imagination. So I might be really far off off base from the original question right now, but the basic idea I think is that all of us are always using our imagination already. Um, you know, our imagination naturally fills in the gaps for us. So I hear a noise at night in my house, and my imagination immediately supplies me with possibilities of what that noise is. And perhaps it makes my heart start to beat faster because I think somebody has broken into my house. Um, so in that case, my imagination is being shaped by fear. And so the question I want to start to ask is, for people within the church, are our imaginations being shaped by the gospel or are they being shaped by fear? And I take the way that apologetics has been, the way that apologetics has been practiced, especially recently it's been co-opted by a culture war. Um, and so we see it as a way of doing culture war or even as a way of winning culture war, which shows that even the way that we're imagining apologetics and the way we use apologetics has gone, has gone wrong, which is why I'm trying to lean more into Mako Fujimura's culture care and say this could be the apologetics of culture care uh, if we're not just trying to, to win and defeat and know yeah. prove ourselves.
0: your comments about how our imaginations fill the gaps naturally leads me to chat about the uh, God of the gaps dynamic of apologetics and how you know one way to think about the history of apologetic arguments uh, throughout throughout church history is this sort of argument for God's existence based upon where the, levi- the evidence gets us so far, and then we've got to sort of fill in the gaps, and that's God. God is sort of the answer to that. Like, we, our science can only explain so much, and then when we can't say anything else, then we say, well, that's where God steps in. And... In recent years with advances in science, it has been perceived as that gap narrowing and narrowing and narrowing, perhaps even to squeeze God out altogether. I'm wondering if you could talk about this idea of the role of the imagination relative to this kind of God of the gaps approach that some have uh, in in the church and they don't even necessarily realize that that's what they're doing, that they're just sort of saying God enters the equation when I can't explain anything else, Mm -hmm. you know?
2: Yeah, that's interesting. Um, a couple of things come to mind. And first of all is I think that a God of the gaps is a very human thing to do. Um, and so I probably don't have quite as negative of a view, uh, as long as we don't end there, to a sort of God of the gaps hypothesis. It seems very human uh, to, I mean, it's almost like a recognition of finitude. You know, I've come to the end of my resources, and I need other resources. Um, and so it must be God. Um, so that's, that's the first response. Um, the second response is, when I think of gaps, I think that one of the problems that we have um, is thinking that knowledge is what's going to get us across all the gaps. I'm just thinking of the way that we might think about what it means to be in relationship with God as a matter primarily of knowing explanations or knowing content, uh, and that if we knew You know that that, that's the same thing. It seems to me like um, faith is a matter of relational trust and relational knowing. And so I think even in my own relationship with my wife, who I've been married to for eighteen years, there are gaps, right? Um, And yet what overcomes those gaps is not complete understanding, but the sort of trust, the generosity, and the love. And so because of that, it seems to me that if we're reimagining apologetics, and it's not a matter of just Knowing that, if it's not a matter of knowing facts or knowing answers or knowing explanations, but it's a matter of knowing a person, there will always be gaps um, that that need to be traversed, but that they need to be traversed relationally um, and then the third thing to say is i I think that the yeah, and part of this is related to the last question the last the last answer is the idea of God only being so good as. As an explanatory mechanism, right? That that, that that's why we need God as an explanatory mechanism, rather than a transformative relational communion, is is an indication that we have gotten off to the wrong start and we're, we're sort of treating God as one more object in the universe um, that uh, is the most necessary object in the you know in on the plane of reality in which we live, and it just seems to me like that is not. Um, An accurate account of God's relationship to us, and so, yeah. I mean, it it doesn't seem to me like science is going to figure everything out. I I I think that that um, is an illusion. I think that the more we learn, the more we realize how much we have to 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 learn. And so, if the only reason you had God in the first place was to help (laughs) with the things that you didn't know, uh, you probably started on the wrong on the wrong
0: foot. Yeah, I appreciate that point and and the relationality dimension uh, as well. My sort of pastoral concern is that if somebody's faith is rooted in, in a God of the gaps type argument, what do you do when what you previously ascribed to well the only thing that can explain this is god what happens when we have you know some sort of explanation that that takes that away from you and and then you just like give up on it you know i would i would i would rather say that god is not found in those gaps he stands over and above them you know
2: sure yeah yeah that makes sense yeah i i, I don't know i i feel like in pastoral ministry what i'm also trying to do is to alert people to more gaps that you're maybe not aware of Right, uh, <laughs> and then what needs to be bridged there is not. Yeah, that's not a gap of. It's a, it's a relational gap, you know, that is bridged by grace rather than by knowledge.
1: Oh, well, Myron Pinner. We talked to him um, in a previous episode for this series, and and we talked a little bit about when you use that concept of God as just a gap filler. Then, like you said, Justin, it's just another object that you're using as a tool to fill in your own project. Right. I mean, that's in some ways, that's what theologians and philosophers would call onto theology or it's also just a, another way of being confined into your and like collapsing God into the confines right. of your rationality as opposed to encountering someone who's truly who's truly other than. It's really idolatrous, basically right?
2: No, I was just gonna say I, I always just have um, yeah, two responses to it like 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 I just did, you know, there's a part of me that's like, yeah, that's that's just so human, you know what I mean? And to say that something is human doesn't mean that it's necessarily right or wrong. Um, it, it's almost like, oh, that's so cute and so human, you know what I mean? Like, and we make idols out of things that are good, right? And so there's something good about that that we've made into an idol. You know, we're trying to understand God, and and so in doing so, we try to pull God down to our level. Uh, we try to we reimagine God in our own image rather than allowing God to reveal Himself to us. And so I, I want to both be critical of it, but also that to have a little bit of, um, yeah, I do that too, right? I also, um, that's a very human thing for me to have. And, you know, Lewis says that God is the great iconoclast, that, you know, he himself shatters our ideas of him. And so I think that's, that's helpful for, for me to remember too.
1: Yeah, and what I appreciate about your approach is even from hearing you now and from reading the book, it sounds like what you're trying to do is to say, even just in method, instead of having a battle of the facts, you know, like who can win the epistemic standoff, it's much more of a descriptive and an invitational approach. So if if you are expanding someone's horizon and you are opening up possibilities that they did not see before that's That's a tremendous service, right? And I might not come with some defeater argument that for all time and all places is just going to seal this deal, right? Yeah. Um, I'm not necessarily working towards that. That's not what I'm spending my energy towards. What I'm spending my energy towards is helping you see things that are possibilities that you might not have seen before. And then that's this invitational space for you to kind of take that up. Um, do, you, do you think that's fair in terms of what you're trying to do?
2: Yeah, certainly. I think that's a really good um, description of it. You know, honestly, I think of maybe even in recent years, I, I taught a class at Fuller Seminary about five years ago um, that, you know, prompted a lot of the, the things that I did in this book. And the, the, first of all, the students were very hostile. Some of the students were very hostile to the class. Um, they were really worried, you know, that they were going to be taught sort of how to win arguments. But, um, I just learned so much from the students as well. And in fact, there was an African-American student in the class who, when we were reading uh, Justin Martyr uh, said, this is the same thing that black lives matter is saying, you know, stop killing us, you know, and, um, and I'll just say, you know, like the faith of my black brothers and sisters is one of the most powerful apologetic arguments that I have encountered in the last five years. And, so, okay, now think about that for a second. The faith of our brothers and sisters, um, like th- that that's not traditionally the way that you think of apologetics, right? Um, we, that's not somebody who's kind of standing up on the stage and giving you all the reasons that you, you can believe. But there's something so profoundly compelling uh, about the faith of our Black brothers and sisters who in the face of incredible suffering and oppression say, this Jesus... Um, this is who Jesus really is, and this is why I find Jesus so beautiful and compelling. That is a provocation, right? Um, even like Ta-Nehisi Coates in Between the World and Me, you know, he's not a person of faith uh, of Christian faith, but he tells the story about um, a family that had lost someone and how they deal with it through their Christian faith, and he says they had their armor and it was real. And so he's in that moment he's feeling power and the provocation of living with faith and that's a whole different way of thinking about apologetics embodied in a life of faith and not in an argument where a life your 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 life is the argument in some sense uh that tells people this is what it would look like to go through all of this to live in this world uh with faith this is how it opens up the world for me i can tell one more story you know that i always tell um, it's at the end of my book, and it's uh, when my wife was uh, at work in Los Angeles with a friend who asked her, um, why is it that you're raising your children with faith instead of allowing them the freedom to choose what they want to believe for themselves? Now, I always, when I speak to, to groups, I always ask them, you know, how would you respond to this to this question? And, and Christians always are super defensive, right, when they, when they hear that, because it's your kids, right? The last thing you want to think is that you were in some way abusing your kids by raising them with Christian faith. And so usually people come up with really defensive responses to that. Uh, And what Melissa did was something very different. She recognized the fact that there was this imaginative frame that was being placed on faith, that faith must be narrow, it must be constrictive, and it must be opposed to freedom. And she said, you know, we don't really think about it that way. For us, faith is the most liberating thing we've ever experienced, and we couldn't imagine a greater gift to give to our kids. And her friend was like, wow, I've never heard or thought about faith that way. And so what did she do? Um, And I can't even take credit for that, because this is before I wrote the book. Um, (laughs) But what she was doing was was reimagining apologetics and giving her friend a new sense of the possibilities that existed in the life of faith. So what if the freedom that you're looking for as an urban Angelino, would actually, could actually be found in the life of faith uh, and not outside it? Now, that doesn't mean that at some point, the idol freedom, that, that's going to need to be, you know, that needs to be uh, critiqued, right? Um, it's not an ultimate freedom. But there's something about that sort of apologetic approach that, seeks to discern what is the frame that's being placed on faith, and is there a picture that holds them captive so we can give them another picture of what faith could could mean.
1: I'm wondering, you talk about empathy um, and the role of empathy in apologetics, and you, you discuss it a little bit in terms of evoking imaginations so that people can kind of uh, sense what it's like to be internal to another commitment, you know, um, but How does that work? How do we think about empathy? There's been some controversy about empathy recently. Um, And how does that fit into your apologetic project, just on a more practical level?
2: Yeah, so I I think you're probably referring to Paul Bloom's book Against Empathy. um, And then some of the Twitter conversations uh, sort of saying that empathy is is maybe a bad thing. Uh, I don't understand that conversation at all. Uh, to be honest, I tend to think of empathy as, as a pretty good thing, as a very good thing. I think the way I'm using it in my project, again, is the sense of the way that we are able to, in some ways, through imaginative engagement, transcend the limitations of our perspective. Um, you know, it's um, to kill a mockingbird, walk, walking in someone else's shoes um, and imagining what it would be like to be another person. And so, part of what that empathy means, it goes both ways. It is, first of all, um, it's asking for empathy uh, from the outsider to be willing to come in and try on Christian shoes, Christian glasses. But it also requires a cultivation of empathy from the person who's making the invitation um, to think about what would it look like for this person to sit down at my table and what would be required for them to feel comfortable and at home. So that means asking questions like, what would resonate with this person? What would be good news to them? Um, you know, what are the longings and losses that are orienting their life right now? Just ask, those are the sort of empathetic identifications I'm talking about, is actually knowing where they are. There's a line in Willie Jennings' um, Christian Imagination where he talks about joining, uh, that true Christian joining requires your own life to be broken open in the encounter. It's not just asking somebody to come over to where you are, but that if you yourself are not broken open um, in the encounter, then you haven't really joined um, a person. And so that's what I think one of the problems with the magisterial uppercase approach to apologetics is it refuses to be broken uh, open. Um, It seeks to stay in control. It seeks to have and demonstrate mastery. Uh, It seeks to. Present itself as having the answers, and that is precisely one of the things that Christian faith is trying to break us of: is our desire for control and mastery and and things like that. You know, and so I think that that's one of the reasons why when I talk about empathy, it requires us to be willing to walk pretty far with outsiders and to move pretty far towards outsiders, Um, because, uh, yeah, if we're just asking for empathy from them. Um, I'm not sure that we've quite understood what it means to bear witness to the Christian gospel if we are not also having empathy for them and for the questions and struggles and doubts um, and and reasons why they don't think that Christian faith is compelling or beautiful, right? Um, If it's not beautiful to them, why is it not beautiful to them? Um, What are the sorts of things that have shaped that imaginative sensibility. Those are the questions you have to ask first before you just start bringing out your arguments. Um, I think that that's what I mean when I say empathy. Um, if you're going to ask an outsider to look through the eyes of faith, um, or is sit down at the table and taste the food, then you have to really think about what hospitality means uh, when it comes to um, that invitation. Mm-hmm.
0: So given that you're at Dort College, which is part of the broader Reformed tradition, I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about a kind of classic Reformed apologetic approach, presuppositionalism, and how this topic of empathy in particular might might be uh, relevant to the presuppositional approach, or at least maybe a sort of a supplement or a critique of it.
2: Yeah, good question. Uh, So presuppositionalism is sort of an approach to apologetics that presupposes the truth of Christian faith and then perhaps seeks to confirm it in experience. Um, it says that all of, us are presuppos- all of us are presuppositionalists. We all start in a position of faith. Uh, now, there are v- varieties of presuppositionalism. Uh, probably the most well-known one is sort of the Greg Bonson, uh, Cornelius Van Til uh, approach to presuppositionalism, uh, which I think if I'm being very honest, uh, when I hear somebody mention the name Van Til, I start looking for the door. Um, I'm just not interested in that sort of apologetics, not because I disagree necessarily theologically with it, because I think that I basically agree with the theological perspective that funds it, you know, Uh, but it just, I disagree pastorally with it so much. Um, So presuppositional apologetics, at least in my experience of, now it seems to me like there are some people doing it really well. Uh, I'll, I'll just say that. There's a guy at Covenant Seminary that seems like he's doing it really well. Um, but all my experience of it have been pretty uniformly negative and almost like we found the ultimate defeater, you know, that no matter what argument you have, like we have this jujitsu that we can do to you. Um, and so that is perhaps one of the reasons why Um, I have sort of a bad taste in my mouth for it. It seems to me like the way that presuppositional apologetics has been practiced, it says because uh, the ground of our faith is scripture or is revelation, you have to start with revelation. And I think the opposite. I think that because the ground of our faith is revelation, we can start anywhere. Um, So wherever people are, we can start where they are because the starting point is not the same as the ground. you don't have to prove your ground in order to start having a conversation with someone, right? You just start wherever they are, whatever questions they have. And so maybe that's the connection to empathy. I think what the Reformed tradition has tried to say, and one of the reasons why um, I find myself in the Reformed tradition, is this perspective that any goodness or truth or beauty that we find must be God's gift um, and not sort of human achievement or human resources. And so it's because of that sort of theology of divine generosity, even in perception, uh, the perception we have of reality, uh, anything true or good or beautiful that we perceive in reality is, is God's gift. Um, and so because of my sort of convictions about general revelation and the beauty of God's creation, uh, the way that God's spirit is at work and present in conscience and in um, culture, uh, that makes me feel like I can start almost anywhere um, in the way that I uh, do apologetics. And so when I wrote uh, Christianity Today, Ted Turnout wrote a nice review, um, kind of a critical review, but a, a very thoughtful review of my book. And he's, he made the connection to presuppositionalism and said that, you know, maybe uh, Bailey should think about connecting this more firmly to presuppositionalism, and I responded to him, I said, you know, this is in some ways a form of presuppositionalism, and in some ways the opposite of presuppositionalism, so it's a form of presuppositionalism in the sense that I certainly agree that we start in faith, Uh, there are things about the world that um, are basic to us, right, that we reason from rather than two. Uh, but it is the opposite of pre in the sense that I don't feel the need to start by having to prove the ground or you know, um, show that anybody who doesn't have the same ground as I do must necessarily be in error. So again, I might be wrong about pre and I might have just had bad exposures to the worst of it. Uh, but for the most part, um, what I'm trying to do is to make an apologetic that is fitting to Reformed theology, especially the Reformed theology of, of uh, revelation, of general revelation, and God's activity and presence in the Spirit. So I'm working out of a Dutch, Dutch Calvinist tradition, which has in some, has in some ways been both um, allergic to apologetics. A Kuiper, like Bart, didn't like the word apologetics, um, but at the same way, if you think of sort of what Bavinck or JH Bavinck, his nephew, did with messiology, are doing a pretty profound kind of apologetics um, based on the conviction of the unity of revelation.
1: Yeah, I really like your answer and how you're thinking through that in terms of um, needing to start with the ground, or not feeling like you need to start with the ground, but instead starting with the person and where they're at, and that that in and of itself is something that Reformed theology, particularly in the Dutch Reformed tradition. Supports. And this is something that I'm thinking through personally, um, particularly in my role at Redeemer and in the Dutch Reformed world. You know, does um, to does apologetics in reform circles necessarily mean presuppositional apologetics, or does it necessarily mean quote unquote reformed epistemology? Are there other ways of thinking within the reformed tradition, particularly the neo-Calvinism tradition, um, and how we can imagine faith and talking about faith and dialoguing with others about faith? Um, And I think your work is a great example of kind of other imaginative ways of doing that. I also like Esther Meek too, her covenant epistemology. I think that's another one that, yeah, yeah, that's another one that's just definitely arising from within that tradition. That's really different. So I think there's a a wide variety of ways that we can approach this um, and lots of opportunities to construct new things, but I love really what you're talking about with empathy because one of the things that I experienced when I, I lived in Italy for four and a half years and then moved back to start a master's in philosophy of religion. And I was in all of these philosophy uh, apologetics type courses where they were talking about, OK, and then when the atheist says this, then you can say this. Right. <laughs> you, and then if they come back with this, come back with this. And I just remember being so disturbed in the class because I thought, you know, when you say atheist, I think Francesco. Like I think Davide, I think Manuela, like I'm, I'm thinking of these people who I know and I love, and I really, frankly, don't want to beat them over the head with arguments. I really want them to know Jesus, you know? Yeah. Um. So I, this is, I don't want to use these on them, you know, but I want to talk to them. And so I think that apologetics can become very um, depersonalized as well. We can just get our arsenal of facts and arguments and just aim them at whoever, Mm. you know, fire. Um, But the way that you're talking about with empathy and imagination, uh, it requires the vulnerability of yourself. Because that's another thing. You don't have to be vulnerable to shoot off an argument.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, But it requires the presence and the vulnerability. and, And I really like that. I think that's a great model for us
2: yeah i think this is you know one of the problems. i mean you know you have the the tragedy of the fall of Rabbi zacharias and um and so you think about the sort of things we've valorized in apologetic witness right um and it is precisely those non vulnerable um mastery and you know uh eloquence you know all, all of those sorts of things that do not require the transformation of the spirit and the person and so That's why if we're thinking about sort of a person-centered or um, person-directed, apologetic, it also requires me to be a certain kind of a person, um, because ultimately what I'm sharing is a truth that is embodied in my life, hopefully. Um, And uh, yeah, and like I said, that your life is the argument. Your life is um, uh, the beautiful, a beautiful life is the most profound uh, argument um, for the the truth and beauty and goodness of christian faith
0: well dr bailey thank you so much for joining us and and sharing the insights from your book about how to reimagine apologetics to focus on the person and to to really emphasize that kind of relationality i really appreciate all everything that you shared with us today
1: yeah thanks so much for your time today talking with us
2: yeah it was such a pleasure talking to you both